the CU 2.0 podcast. Welcome to the CU 2.0 podcast with your host, Robert McGarvey. Here to tell you, you probably don't want to listen to this podcast. That's because futurist Brett King has a dystopian tale to tell you where big, big banks get bigger and bigger, little institutions struggle to survive. It's not a cheery tale, but it's an awful lot of facts support his argument. He also offers some glimmers of hope about what small institutions, in particular credit unions, can do to survive in this, this coming apocalypse. Along the way, he talks about the Apple credit card, blah is his basic reaction to it, why Apple Pay has stalled despite the dominance of digital and mobile in the coming world, why digital is really all that truly matters to financial institutions, how the era of the one-stop financial services institution is at an end. We're much more transactional now. We will go to the provider who offers us the best deal for service A, go to a different provider for service B. It's a fascinating discussion about banking tomorrow. If you want to survive, listen in. What's your view of banks' history? If you look at what banks provide in terms of utility around money, increasingly that's being defined by technology. And what is clear is that with the exception of the licensing structures around regulation, you don't need to be a bank to deliver that utility. So the only question is, does the regulatory structure change to allow technology companies who will differentiate in terms of their quality of service in the moment, will they take away the role of many banks? And and the answer is yes. Uh, Will some banks survive? Yes, some banks will figure out that they can be part of the technology stack of banking and for the next 20 years still maintain some sort of physical presence in the world. But while, while there's a generational shift in terms of the way we think about banking, but ultimately, like 50, 100 years out, you might have some still some boutique advisory banking sort of businesses that are quaint, you know, for hipsters to use or whatever they will be back, you know, in that, that time. Um, but the majority of day-to-day banking would be just embedded in the technology world. Well, don't we see hints of this already? Things like of course. Pay, like PayPal. There are people who pay yeah. all their bills with PayPal, which in the U.S. at least is not registered as a bank. Right, and they don't have FDIC insurance, so if PayPal went past you, you theoretically lose all your money, right? But right. Um, people don't care. They, the utility trumps the banking license. That's what happened in China with Alipay and Tencent. The banks initially thought they're no threat to us because people trust banks. But the first use case that these guys tackled was the red packet at Chinese New Year. Chinese New Year is when they celebrate and to show their care for people around them, they'll give them these red packets. And the red packets had a passion. So if you've got a doorman in your building or you know a teacher for your kids or whatever, you give them a red packet to thank them for what they'd uh, done the year before. Um, and so by putting that on mobile and having people adopt that so rapidly, people were suddenly like, wow, you know, I, I mean, I was able to send this red packet. It worked. My relatives got it. Um, it works flawlessly. If I can pay people like with a red packet, 
why can't I use my mobile phone for paying for other goods and services, buying my coffee or, you know, my uh, my noodles for lunch or whatever? Um, and so one of the reasons that Alipay and Tencent became so dominant in the mobile payment space in China so quickly was that utility became trust. And so the concept that being a bank is special because you're licensed to look after money, that is being eroded. Banks don't really realize that. Banks sort of still think they're special. But the reality is if you look at this trend globally in terms of consumer behavior particularly, people are choosing alternative platforms based on better utility rather than a bank license behind it. So that's where banks are being left behind. Banks have this artificial friction around KYC and identity verification and these you know, rules that you have to jump through. I call it lucky to be a customer scenario, right? Where you know, you've got to go to the bank and prove your worth to be a customer. And that artificial friction is really going to come back and bite them in a world where low latency, low friction engagement is you know, the most valuable uh, representation of what a bank should be. Do you see the biggest banks doing better at coping with these changes than smaller ones? Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, well, first of all, if you look at smaller banks in the U.S., 70% of banks in the U.S. don't even own their own technology stack. So they're completely at the behest of, a, you know, a vendor like Jack Henry or FIS or Pfizer. But the, uh, the bigger banks like the J.P. Morgan Chase and so forth, these guys see the writing on the wall. They, they've got these brands. Networks that are a lot more sensitive to behavioral change than the smaller community banks. And they've already seen a, a, a massive shift in, in day-to-day banking behavior from customers. So they see that the vast majority of their customers annually don't even visit a branch unless the bank forces them to. They've got that data there. They can see that Chase's investment, for example, in mobile has attracted large swathes of millennials. It's not their branch locations that has made them successful with millennials. It's been their mobile app and their focus on on digital. And so, you know, you already have the likes of Chase and others have sort of figured out that digital is the differentiation. Now, if you look at the spend in uh, big banks on digital, you clearly see the top 20 banks are spending more than pretty much all the other banks in the United States. And so between 2008 and 2018, you have deposits shifting. Um, You have 27% of US deposits held in the top 20 banks in 2008. Today, it's 70%. And so that consolidation of deposits is not because they've got bank licenses, not because of branch networks, because branch networks have been shrinking. It's because of their investment in digital. So it's paying off for them. Now, does that mean they can can compete with the likes of Amazon or Apple if they decide to get into banking? Well, the Chinese experience tells us that they can to some extent um, when they pick their areas of, of influence, but where they get where they continue to get benefit is from consolidation where people are moving out of smaller banks into larger bank relationships because of their technology investment to date. Do you see the Apple credit card as something significant? I think it's a waste of time, dude. So do I. It seems like same old, same old with the Apple name. Slap it is. Like, you know, the Apple, if you look at the Chinese ecosystem, 
with Alipay and Tencent, you know, $22 trillion in mobile payments last year, more than all of the plastic cards in the world combined. And yet Apple comes out of the gate. Instead of trying to do something to really move the needle on mobile adoption, which would give them the largest capture of users you know, in the United States, they do a Me Too plastic card. Like, well, I guess titanium, but why? Why would you do that? You know, I think in the early phase of rolling out Apple Pay, Apple was told repeatedly and again and again by the MasterCards and Visas of the world, no, you can't do this. We will not work with you if you don't toe the line. Whereas Alipay and Tencent didn't do that. They were like, yeah, well, you know, forget it. We're just going to do our own thing. And that the network effect of really plugging into consumer behavior that was changing was, was sort of key. In the U.S., though, you know, you've got legacy behaviors. You have people still writing checks for their landlords and people still using cash because they, you know, they, don't, they want to keep it off book or whatever or they don't trust the system. Uh, so you've got a different set of criteria in the U.S. So you know, for, to move the, the U.S. population onto mobile payments, you need a leader like Apple to really make some, some big moves. This was not one of them. Well, Apple Pay has pretty much stalled, I think. I mean, do you... Do you... Yeah. Wouldn't you agree that it did fine, then it hit a plateau where it stayed? It hasn't shrunk, but it's not growing, I don't think. The biggest problem with Apple Pay is merchant acceptance. Merchants are not enthused or excited about moving to Apple Pay unless merchants really support that and use it for customers as a differentiation. Like, it'll be cheaper for you, it's going to be better for you, we'll give you a discount if you use Apple Pay or something like that it's going to be much harder to move the needle. But the merchants aren't excited about it, and so they resist. They don't understand it, so they don't even enable the chip readers or the contactless readers in their point of sales often. They don't, they don't see the need to upgrade their point of sale. And so unless you can change that pause acceptance, Apple Pay can't continue to grow. That was the big thing about Alipay and Tencent. They didn't need any of that. All you needed to do was show someone else your phone and um, you know, take a photograph of a QR code and you could pay. So there was no pause infrastructure required to enable network effect. So ultimately, you're saying that bankers, and that would include credit union executives, think because they have a federal charter, if you will, in some cases it's state, but because yeah. they have government approval, they have a license to exist. And you're saying no. Not long term. If you look around the world, it's just a matter of time before the U.S. has to have a form of a digital banking license that doesn't require compliance with the CRA. Um, and that is because every other mature regulated uh, regulator in the world is shifting towards that. Um, you know, we have fintech licensing in Hong Kong, Singapore, London, across the EU, in Australia, you know, et cetera, uh, you know, China. Um, and the U.S. doesn't yet have this because they don't want to they don't want to disrupt the level playing field that CRA requires around branch, you know. But at some point, the U it's going to become so obvious that the U.S. is so far behind on pure play licensing that they're going to have to move. Right? And I predict that 
it'll probably be led by the New York Fed, um, you know, or someone like that pushing this, and then the OCC launching their charter without the resistance to that and, and moving forward. I don't know what we're going to do about the CRA, but at some point that law will have to come off the books because it doesn't even create financial inclusion anymore. Um, so once that happens, once that sort of level playing field is removed and digital guys can come in, then the real problem that the smaller banks will face is a fundamental shift in economics, is that the market will see that these challenger banks can acquire customers at one-fiftieth of the cost it costs a credit union to acquire a a new member through a branch network. Um, And at that point, either you play by the new rules or you you slowly become obsolete. I think the only way credit unions can tackle this is to say we, we need to think very differently about our place in society, what's been our differentiation, member servicing. All right, so how do we service members in a digital world? And then collaboratively, you know, as groups of credit unions getting together and creating that, that capability together, because I don't think individual credit unions can do it. That would be one way from the transition. But no, I think you're right. I think for a long time, and I've met them, you know, these guys think, well, yeah, but, you know, they don't have a license moving. I'm a challenger bank, you know. You don't have a license, you know. You're not really a bank. I'm like, does it really matter? You know, we've got a quarter of a million customers and they're transacting every day. Does it really matter to those customers? We don't have a banking license. As long as they've got a debit card and they can move their money around and it's safe. You know, we've been around for seven years. Customers are going to look at us and say, these guys are here to stay. They're safe. So yeah, I, th- I think there's lots of kids who think their bank is Venmo. Yeah. And they're perfectly happy customers. The, the move to real-time in banking, I see that as a big hurdle for legacy banks. Do you? Absolutely. Because, uh, you know, you've got all these core systems that you know, don't operate on that basis. Um, we even see, see it with a lot of the bigger banks, you know, banks in Australia, bank, banks in the UK, you know, where their systems have sort of started to come apart at the seams where you've got the real-time world meeting legacy architectures. And so that continues to be a problem. The real shift there will be around the, uh, the move to voice, voice-based AI. So as we move to smart assistants like Alexa, Siri, and so forth, that when we start integrating banking into this ecosystem, the real-time capabilities really differentiate at that point. You know, just simple stuff like... I should be able to ask Siri, can I afford to go out for dinner this weekend? And you should know the answer to that. And you can, you know, that's the one thing that I'll say with the Apple Pay thing or the Apple Card is I think Apple is starting to think about financial health as an ecosystem in the same way they think about physical health. And so I do expect the operating systems that we use, whether on the phone or with voice, that will start to really be your financial coach. And because it's the device you're using, this will be the device all the time you're using to access your bank or pay for stuff. It's only logical that this is where that sort of day-to-day financial advice will be. The problem for banks is it will also lead to fulfillment. And so if you're not able to hook into that ecosystem, then you won't get a member coming to the branch to ask you for a a line of credit if they've just been able to get it through their phone in real time when and where they need it. Well, you already see that where uh, non-banks are scraping off what they see as the more profitable forms of loans, things like car loans. Uh, Exactly. Home loans. The biggest biggest lenders for home loans in America are non-banks at this point. Yeah. And, And also, look at lending. 
I don't have the I don't have the recent figures, but I can tell you between 2012 and 2017 that you know, lending through fintechs went from zero essentially about five percent of the market um, in unsecured lending to uh, over forty percent of the market today. So you know we've already seen a significant shift. Oh, you, the, the, some of the biggest mortgage lenders are places like Rocket Mortgage, which for all practical purposes didn't exist ten years ago. Exactly. And home mortgages used to be owned by essentially small and mid-sized banks and credit unions. Yeah. Ain't true anymore. In yeah. part because of the technology. You know, Rocket Mortgage will say, hey, we can approve or disapprove this loan application in 10 minutes at a, at exactly. a bank or a credit union. It's 10 days, man. Exactly. 10 days. So there's no comparison, <laughs> right? And that's, that's the thing is that um, credit unions will, will look at that situation and go, that's too hard. We don't even know where to begin to do that. Where, um, you know, Rocket Mortgage comes along and they're like, well, we don't have any of the constraints that you guys have. Um, and so we can do that. And if you're a customer and you want to buy a home and your credit union says, look, don't expect to hear from us you know, for a couple of weeks. And Rocket Mortgage says, we'll give you an answer right now. Who are you going to choose? You want to buy the home. You're not there to buy a mortgage. You're there, you just want to buy a home. And so this shift to real time is not just about lowering the friction. It's about the fact that it's the way we use banks, that if you can streamline banking so it's part of my life and it's a more natural part of my life when and where I need it, I'll, I'll reward you with my business because I just want to get it done. You know, I'm not going to have the loyalty to your branch and your pieces of paper that require a signature um, just because you're a credit union. Sorry, it's not going to happen. Our interactions become transactional, so I don't necessarily want one institution to provide all of my banking needs. In fact, I don't have one institution. I probably have no, six, it'll six be like or apps. eight. Yeah. No, it'll be, it'll be like apps, you know, just choose the right utility for the right time. And some of that will be a choice and some of it will be unconscious because you, know, you might walk into a grocery store if Apple comes up with a message on your phone saying, hey, you know, we know, know you normally spend um, you know, $600 at Whole Foods when you go grocery shopping, but today you've only got $300 in your account. Would you like the additional cash to complete your grocery shopping today? You don't even think about this. You're not going to go, well, hang on, let me contact my credit union and apply for a credit card. You know, you're not going to do that. Well, there already are fintechs coming along. You probably know this better than I do that are devising tools to stop uh, bounce checks overdrafts where they yep. do short-term injections of cash when, when and as you need them, which is just exactly. a fascinating thing. And keep in mind how many banks live on that $35 overdraft charge. This is a billion dollar, uh, billions of dollars a year, yeah. And these fintechs, if they, I, I, I believe they have the tools. I think they can put that out of business within five years if awareness spreads. Yeah, exactly. This is where the economics are at risk because think of how much, if you're in retail banking today, how much of your business in terms of profitability is dependent on, on lending? Can, can anyone make money out of checking accounts and savings accounts and this sort of business anymore? No, you know, and, and so the, the high margin stuff, credit and investments, this is where it's, you know, the fintechs are really going after this hard. Yeah, I hear some people say, oh, isn't it bad that Chase charges 12 bucks a month or, or something like that for checking? I don't have a source from Chase that's told me this, but I believe that if you called up Chase and said, I will take all your customers who pay a monthly checking fee, would you give them to me? 
Chase would probably say, sure, take this. Agreed. Because <laughs> I know there are banks that give credit unions their branch and their customers in certain parts of the country. Just take them, please. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's yeah, want. HSBC did that a few years ago. They sold off all their East Coast branches. Um, they sold off all of their advanced customers. They only kept their premier customers, the uh, mass affluent um, brand. You know, they, they lost all of the day-to-day banking people, uh, um, even though they're paying a fee. They're like, yeah, we don't, we don't make any money out of them. They're gone. Which bank was that? HSBC. I, I still talk with bankers, credit union executives who think their branches are an asset. I see the branches essentially as a liability. I mean, I've done the work on this numerous times, and I've had these discussions with CEO executives and so forth. But if you were to honestly examine the uh, behavior, the emerging behavior of customers and how they use branches, literally nine out of 10 instances that they visit a branch is because they're forced to buy the bank or the credit union. And so if you're honestly looking at the way people use branch, you'll see that they don't self-select to go to the branch because it's better service or they get better advice. Ultimately, people just want the problem fixed. Now, credit unions do differentiate in terms of their level of service in the branch. But if, you know, more than half of the U.S. population this year will visit a branch less than once in a year. And so if your differentiation is service in a branch versus service on digital, can you continue to survive on that basis? Not if I'm only getting access to your differentiation once every two years. It's not enough for me to go, I'm going to stick with that credit union. It's just simply not enough. And the fact that as a customer, you know, if I can get a solution in real time through the technology layer, I will perceive that as much better service than if you say, I'm sorry, you have to come in the branch and sign a piece of paper. There's no way you're going to think of that ultimately as better service because it's just friction. Yeah, you know, sometimes I think looking at banks is like looking at uh, pharmacies in 1950. And when I was a kid in America, there was a neighborhood-owned pharmacy in every neighborhood. Where I live now in central Phoenix, there's none, zero, not one. It's all chains and only a few chains. And, uh, and I see the same thing happening in banking, unfortunately. Yeah, there's a, a misunderstanding in the U.S. that we're a, a capitalist market. You know, if you look at Keynesian economics, even go back to Adam Smith, the fundamentals of good capitalism is competition. And in the U.S., the U.S. is built to create these oligopolies or monopoly uh, you know, sectors where you have three or four players at the top and that's it. You know, the, the new players can't get access. And it's the way the lobbying system works and the you know, regulatory capture works and all of that sort of stuff. So it's not capitalist in the way China is, where these new companies can emerge and because access to market overnights can change and you know, new players will replace the old players quite quickly. This this is much harder to do. The internet enabled it to, us to do it with sort of you know um, massive behavioural shifts. So the the borders, Amazon thing, the blockbuster Netflix thing. You know, we uh, Amazon, uh, sorry Uber and taxis. We have seen seen that to some extent. But the the problem you've got in the US is you know we're going to have more and more consolidation of the banking sector, which frankly is required. You know, the fact that we've got probably 9,000 
you know, credit unions and savings and loans banks in the U.S. left today is just insane. So there, there is consolidation required. You're going to just build these mega brands, um, and to, you know, the tech tech companies are going to come in and take uh, take share margin where they can as well. I think what's going to what's going to be clear out of this in a few years is that the whole universal banking model, the one stop shop, that's quickly going to disappear through through choice. So you won't go. You won't start a relationship with a bank, even if they're digitally competent, and they'll be your one-stop shop for all of your financial services needs. I think that those days are well well gone. That's the whole business model of a credit union, though. Yeah. Uh, Before we go... The CU 2.0 podcast is looking for a few good sponsors to help us spread the word about the digital transformation of credit unions. You could be one of them. Contact Robert McGarvey for details at rjmcgarvey at gmail.com. First come, first served. Again, that's rjmcgarvey at gmail.com. The CU 2.0 podcast.